Welcome to Bob Got a Microphone, the podcast that exists because I, Bob Tarantino, bought a microphone. There are a lot of interesting people out there, and these are some of their stories. If you've ever been to Toronto's Kensington Market, you'll know that one of its great charms is its collection of eclectic shops. Mika Barraquet is the owner of Good Egg, one of the best of those shops, an accessible space offering a curated collection of cookbooks and kitchenware. Mika and I chat about how she discovers and chooses what to carry, how being located in Kensington has informed her approach to cooking and the store's identity, how cookbooks have evolved over the last 15 years, the different national cultures of cookbooks, and the meditative pleasures she's discovered in expanding her efforts to include publishing cookbooks. This is her story. All right, Mika Barakat, welcome. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good, thanks. So I know a lot of people who like cooking. I know a lot of people who like books. You're the only person I know who decided to open up a shop devoted to selling cookbooks. So how did you get to that point? They're the only two things I know anything about. <laughs> it's true. It's sad, but true. <laughs> I, I've, I've worked in bookstores since high school in Toronto, and I've been cooking all along. And when the opportunity presented itself to open up a shop, it was kind of a no-brainer. I, I, actually, at first, I was considering opening up a general bookstore in Kensington because I thought the neighborhood could really use one. But I had heard through the grapevine that this ain't the Rosedale Library was open, was moving to Nassau, right. in fact, to the same location that I was interested in. And within about 24 hours, I modified my business plan and decided to focus on my one true love cooking. Let's sort of pivot off of what you mentioned there about being in Kensington Market. So you and I both live in Kensington Market. I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of it. Why was Kensington sort of the, the perfect location for you? I, I wouldn't have done it any, any other way. Running a small business is um, time consuming enough that having to journey to another location outside of my vicinity uh, makes it extra challenging. There are, every day something comes up, smashed glass, an attempted break in, especially in Kensington Market. But there, there are infinite reasons why you need to be close to your business. It's, it's almost like having a puppy. You don't want to be too far away from it. So right. it was a matter of convenience. And, and, and I like the notion of being able to, to just roll out of bed and uh, get myself over to the shop within minutes. I like it. And as somebody who, who's a big fan of books, and, and I, I like bookstores in particular, although I should say, I do find bookstores, like the experience of going into bookstores, I often find a little bit depressing, because every time I walk into a bookstore, I'm like, oh, like here's like another 1000 books, like I'm never gonna have the time to read. But that being said, huge fan of bookstores. As a consumer, I mean, the constant kind of drumbeat we hear is bookstores are in an incredibly challenging environment uh, as a result of things like Amazon and, and other online retailers. How have you been able to navigate those challenges as like a bricks and mortar, you know, physical retailer of books? Well, in a variety of ways, I, I do a lot of digging. I, I don't I don't take the publisher's suggestions for what they believe are going to be the best sellers. In fact, I look the other way when I when I sense something is is going for bestseller vibes. I, I look for the underdogs. I look for the imports. I look for the smaller uh, releases. I look for the things that are of great personal interest that I can hand sell and personally recommend that I know I will use. And people people love cookbook recommendations. That's really our bread and butter. And also by carrying non-book items, uh, to be honest. 
I, I carry a lot of kitchenware, a lot of tchotchkes, a lot of things that support cooking that are not books. And there are no other stores in Toronto that I know of that combine cookbooks and kitchen supplies and also have odd little novelty items. So it's it's really by being eclectic and weird that we're we're able to do this. Right. And so can you walk me through a little bit, like how do books get onto your radar? Like it sounds like you're sort of hunting for them or, or looking for them. Like how, if somebody has, if a publisher, if an author has created a cookbook, how do you find out about that? Like, are there sort of fairs that are devoted to cookbooks or what are sort yeah. of the resources? Yeah, there are fairs. They're, they're kind of a, a dinosaur at this point. Uh, I, I don't imagine I'll ever go to another book fair or, or a gift fair or any types of markets that have a lot of fluorescent lighting and giant halls. Um, thank God. It's, it's the digitization of shopping is both wonderful and awful at the same time, but it's, it's definitely replaced these archaic mall type environments where we used to do a lot of our shopping and also sales reps that used to come to your door and would spend half a day if they were a large publisher, they would sometimes spend two days with you, pouring through catalogs page by page, showing you samples, um, a very fun but tedious process, usually involving a lot of wine. That no longer exists. Sales reps don't really have the budget to do that anymore. Everything is streamlined for businesses. They, they produce, you could ask any publisher to produce a specialized catalog just for you, and they'd be more than happy to do it. But I, I, I never ask for that. I, I like to do my own searching. I, I tend to start from the back of a catalog where they bury the titles that they don't think are going to be popular. I look all over the place. I look at what other shops are doing. I look at what my favorite cookbook authors are reading. First and foremost, I'm always interested to see what people like Nigel Slater is recommending or Nigella Lawson or Rachel Roddy or Diana Henry. Uh, some of our staff favorites, we, we look at their Instagram feed, for instance, and find out what they're interested in. And those those tend to be the books that we love the most. Amazing. And so is it fair to say that sort of how people interact with recipes has kind of changed over the lot, like, let's say 10, 15 years or so? I, re I remember cookbooks being a real kind of in some cases, they were not heirloom is probably the wrong word. But you know, they were they were sort of these resources that families had, like they were in the, in, you know, available to the family, and they kind of got passed down. And nowadays, almost every recipe is available online, or if you're interested in a recipe, you can get it online quite easily. Frankly, I find a lot of those recipes a little annoying to deal with, like you can never just get to the recipe, like you always have to scroll through like, it's so true. you know, seven minutes of background explanation why, of what's why happening. Why do they do that? I don't know. <laughs> um, Nobody likes it. Right. And I get the sense that cookbooks in particular have become much, like they're just a lot prettier than they used to be, right? Like they're sort exactly. of art, artifacts at this point. Like they have these gorgeous pictures in them. I mean, am I, is that, is, is my sort of observation on that point correct? Like, are you, see, have you seen a yeah, shift no, in how it. cookbooks work? Yeah, you nailed it. But there's still, there's a bit of a return to tradition. There's some, there's still some wonderful cookbooks that follow that older format of the, the New York Times style cookbook that is text only. Uh, Alice Waters is kind of notorious for this. She uh, only has simple line drawings in her cookbooks. There, there are no glossy photos. Of course, now the trend is for matte photography, this softer, softer focus, a little bit more rustic looking. 
But yeah, cookbooks um, are now coffee table books. And that's the hook because there are so many other ways of finding recipes. YouTube apps, cooking apps, uh, the aforementioned New York Times, they have incredibly wonderful and useful and very inexpensive app that a lot of my friends use, and, and I do too. Um, and it's, it's, it's hard to compete with the flexibility of things like Kindle and the, the apps that allow you to scroll and pause and hold your page open and are stain-proof and have glossaries and links to all sorts of things. I, for me, cooking is, involves a lot of comparison shopping. I'll, I'll usually find an inspiration in a book because the photograph draws me in or the hilarious title or the narrative uh, that precedes the recipe that'll suck me in and then I might do some further digging and look in other books I might look online I might um, ask a friend and my recipes end up being sort of a composite of all of these things but generally I find that cookbooks are the starting point like what's your relationship to cookbooks in the sense like do you have a lot of them like I would imagine somebody who really loves cooking and, and loves sort of the artifact of the cookbook it must be an incredible sort of challenge challenge to resist just taking one of every single thing that comes through your shop. It's funny, but when you have a shop, you you don't need to bring the books home with you. You spend all day <laughs> long with them. And it's kind of like working in a cheesecake factory. You're sick of cheesecake by the time you get home. You don't want another slice. I, I do have a healthy supply of cookbooks at home. Um, don't get me wrong. Uh, I have an entire double billy bookcase full of cookbooks and then some i also give away a lot of my books to friends who um, want to refresh their collection I'll, I'll sort of loan them out semi-permanently and sometimes i get them back sometimes i don't i never sweat it because i kind of have an infinite supply but yeah i i i have a lot of restraint as well um i i have certain rules about what i bring into my house not not just cookbooks but everything if if i don't have somewhere to put it i don't bring it home so for those listeners who, who aren't familiar with Kensington Market, you were in Kensington Market uh, on Augusta. You closed down, I believe, in, was it 2018 or 2019? Uh, yeah, that sounds right. 2018, okay. I think. Right, which was a real loss for the neighborhood, frankly. Um, oh, and I remember when, when we saw that you were shutting down and we were sad. You've now reopened, also on Augusta, closer to Dundas. What's sort of the relationship between your interest in cooking, your passion for cooking, and Kensington Market in particular? Like, what's the story of Kensington Market and how it relates to cooking? Well, I grew up here, so I'm, I'm accustomed to the notion of picking something up on my way home. I tend not to keep a ton of food in the house at any given point, you know, unless I have a few days off or during pandemic times. But typically, I, I have an idea of what I want to eat, and I pick it up as I as I leave work. And so in that sense, my my journey with food is very mood oriented. I don't plan out my meals for the week. I also I don't have kids. Uh, I have a partner, but he's happy to eat whatever I make. And so I, I, I tend to eat based on what I absolutely feel like eating that day. And it's a real luxury, I, I realize. And I, I particularly noticed this during the pandemic when I actually did have to do a bit of meal planning for the week and think it through and didn't necessarily have the, the option of changing my mind at the last minute like I, I do when the grocery stores are 
open every day when it's safe to go into them on a daily basis. So I think that has influenced my relationship with food. It's a bit of a chicken or egg situation. I, I think living here has made me super curious about ingredients in particular. And that's often the starting point for what I make. If if I see lovely broccoli on my way home, that catches my eye, then I'm immediately drawn to it. And that's likely what I'm going to eat. Now, another thing, another endeavor that you sort of developed, I, I, I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but I guess while the shop was closed is you're not only a, a retailer of books, you're also a publisher of cookbooks. So how did how did you make that transition? Like what, what made you get into publishing? Because that I mean, those are very different sort of skill sets. I feel like oh. they're very different undertakings to from going from retailing to publishing. Small P publisher. Uh, I, okay. I've, I've, I've published two very small, very niche books uh, written by professional food writers. And one, in fact, who's a James Beard and IACP award-winning cookbook author. I uh, totally lucked out there. Um, yeah, so... Technically, I, I went to publishing school, and it's always been at the back of my mind that I should put that to good use one day. And meeting Jennifer McLoggan, the aforementioned cookbook author, we started talking about doing a book together on blood, cooking with blood. She's published several books that are well-respected. Nobody wanted to publish her blood book. And it intrigued me. And so we mulled it over for a few years before... We really did anything about it. And um, during the pandemic, I, I had the time to do it. And she is a very disciplined recipe writer and she got to work. She already had a number of the recipes written. So it just took a, a little bit of editing on her end. And, um, and I worked on it very slowly. She held my hand the entire way. And uh, after the first one, I, I felt like I could do more and started getting the word out. And now I've got a few more books in the works. It's super that's fun. Great. Yeah, it's, that sounds amazing. It must be really satisfying to kind of bring something like that into the world. You know, especially with a book like you're describing where other people kind of were reluctant to publish it or, or didn't want to sort of, you know, expend the effort on it. And you're able to bring that out. And I, I think we should note it was quite, you know, well received. Yeah, it made it on the, um, the New Yorker's top 10 mm, right. cookbook list. And uh, it was in Bon Appetit in their holiday roundup picks of the year. Yeah, it's it partly due to Jennifer's name recognition. And partly due to the design, it's a small, eye-catching pink book, a little bit unusual for a cookbook. And so I think, I think designers took a little bit of an interest in it and aficionados also because it's so niche and there's nothing on the market that deals with blood exclusively, at least not in English. I think there is one in French um, where, where they are less squeamish about such things. So yeah, I had a, a small but captive audience I, I must say the, the thing that I love about publishing is that it's in a sense very meditative. Working in retail, you have to be a jack of all trades. You have to work quickly and you're making snap decisions all the time. With publishing, it's the complete opposite. You're focused on one manuscript for months and months. And I, I love how it slows down my brain. So it's a nice compliment, and I would encourage anybody who has the job that is very hectic to balance it with something that's very meditative, like producing something really small and detailed. 
Amazing. And actually, I just want to pull on a thread that you mentioned there about books that are in other languages. Is that sort of a, a challenge or, or is that an opportunity for you? I mean, I, I suspect you must find, you know, as we discussed before, that you kind of are, are looking for books. You must find books that, are, that look amazing that you want to have access to, but they're not in English, right? Like they're originally published in another language. Is there sort of a universe of books out there that you'd love to, you know, bring to to your customers, but you, you, you know, you can't because they're French or in Greek or in Japanese or some other language that they, they might not find particularly accessible. Oh, I've barely scratched the surface. Uh, but yeah, the, the French market certainly, but the British market is one that I'm particularly interested in. Hmm. There's such a wealth of recipe writing in the UK and the cookbook design is unparalleled maybe maybe Australia comes close. I, I'd love to have better connections to the UK publishers because a lot of those editions don't have North American rights. They're incredibly expensive to import. And it's a shame because they're so well written. They're so handsome. There's such a tradition, uh, particularly in baking. And I, I'd, I'd love to have easier access. Since Brexit, it's become incredibly difficult to get a lot of the UK titles in. Hmm. I, I hadn't really appreciated that. Like, I, I guess I never really thought about different countries having different sort of approaches or different cultures when it comes to, to cookbooks. I mean, obviously, with oh. cooking, sure. But with cookbooks, I mean, is there a, can, can we say there's a Canadian culture with respect to cookbooks? Or are we still developing that? There's a small Canadian culture. Um, it's a much smaller market, and I think sure. there's lots of room to grow. There, there are a few few publishers who specialize in cookbooks who are pretty notable, but it's really in its infancy. And and yeah, absolutely, every country has a, a defined aesthetic. They tend American publishers, where we get a lot of our books from, they redesign their books to be more appealing to big box stores. They they tend to dumb everything down. They'll sometimes change titles if they think they're too obscure or vague. They're a lot more in your face. Um, they tend to like putting people on their covers. They love the cult of personality. In the UK, you rarely see a cookbook author on the cover. It's it's usually something graphic, not necessarily food. They really underestimate the intelligence of their audience in America, sadly. And Canada is linked to American publishing hugely. We 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 most of the books we get come from the US. Well, here's here's to seeing that develop in a positive way. And I'm sure that, that you'll be playing a big role in that. I don't want to take up too much of your time. This has been great. Where can people find you? How can people get in touch with Good Egg? They can come visit us in our store. We're at 156 Augusta Avenue and we're online. We're just about to launch an online shop as well. It's um, goodegg.ca. Fantastic. Well, Mika, thanks so much for taking the time. This has been a real pleasure. My pleasure. Nice talking to you. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, liking it, sharing it with your friends, or inflicting it on your enemies. If you're still listening, you're probably the only one who's doing so. The secret number is 42. To claim your no prize, send an email with the secret number in the subject line to bob at bobgotamicrophone.com.